to open a Bible to the book of Acts. As you know, we have reached the halfway point of the book of Acts, and so we are taking some time to just think about some lessons for the local church that are important for us from the book of Acts. Um, These last few weeks, and this week included, uh, is just really kind of a teaching time as we consider some very practical kind of nuts and bolts uh, as we observe uh, what we've learned in the book of Acts. Um, We started last week on some lessons for the local church, and I want to continue that study um, this morning. Lord, we do pray for your help and strength as we look to your word to learn the lessons that we should as a congregation. Be reminded that this, as we've sung about, is uh, your church, and we pray that we would do all things here in this place and in our lives individually um, that would uh, be pleasing to you with an effort to uh, do what you have asked us to, what you've called us to. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last week we began a study, really, lessons for the local church uh, from the book of Acts. And we reminded ourselves that the book of Acts has a regular theme of the Spirit's empowerment of believers. And so this is going to come up again this week, even as we talk about the local church and the importance of it. But we we reminded ourselves that you really can't have a local church, you can't have an assembly of believers without without this this foundation of the gospel. And that when one is converted by the gospel, when one comes to Christ in faith and repentance, enters into the body of Christ, now that person is indwelt by the Holy Spirit who has an ongoing ministry. And so really, uh, although it's a, it's a theological theme through the book of Acts that the Spirit is at work and continuing the work of Jesus Christ, although that's a kind of a major theological theme, it's a very practical theme as well as we consider the importance of the local church because the local church is a gathering of people who are indwelt by the Spirit. We talked in our discussion on Wednesday night, if you were here, about the fact that we don't always walk in the Spirit, right? Sometimes we we walk in the flesh, and and when that happens, there tends to be discord often uh, amongst uh, believers because we're, we're warring and fighting among us to gain our own desires, as James says, right? But it's important for us to recognize that we have the Spirit in common. We have, there's one Spirit that unites us together. And that's foundational when we think about the local church, that we're united together by the gospel and we're, we're indwelt by the Spirit. Then we reminded ourselves that there's also these kind of practical um, foundation stones that are laid in the book of Acts. And we can make some observations from those. Uh, then they're, they're taught to us more thoroughly as we go throughout the epistles. In particular, there are three epistles that really give us the handbook for church function, and those would be what? The, 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 uh, the letters, the epistles that really kind of unpack this in a very practical way for the local church. That would be what? Very good. The pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, which that was the purpose for which they were written. They were written to give instruction to church leadership on how the church should function. All right. So some of these things are are 
packed, unpacked continually throughout the New Testament, but we're kind of given the seeds of it in the book of Acts, so it does us well to stop and, and take note of those things. And we started with, with healthy leadership, and we asked ourselves the question, what does healthy leadership look like? How is it modeled in the, in the book of Acts, and then how is it described throughout the epistles? And we really um, made some very important points, I think, uh, for us to remember. Some of it is probably review for you. Certainly, if you have been through our new members class, this material is in some part review for you, but it's good for us to rehearse these things. We talked about, um, we believe there are basically, there are two offices. Uh, one of them is the office of the deacon, which we'll touch on here uh, this week. And the other office has three titles that all describe the same office, and those three titles are what? Pastor, good, so shepherd, okay, elder, good, and bishop, or what's the other word we use for that, what? Overseer, very good, very good. So, so we pointed out that it would be very appropriate to address myself or Pastor Dan as pastor, right, or, or to call us Elders would be appropriate biblically as well. That's probably not the buzzword we use as much around here, but that's okay. Um, the bearded ones, yeah. Um, or, or overseer. Any of those would be appropriate biblical titles. Now, we do tend to fall into the pattern of calling pastor, um, and that's, that's completely fine. By the way, as a sidebar, uh, you'll notice that one of our core values is that every Every Christian is a minister, right? Some churches, it's very popular to call the pastor minister. Well, is the pastor a minister? Absolutely. He should be doing ministry. He should be serving others. But in the New Testament, what we see is that every one of the brethren are ministers. Every one of those in the church are ministers. That is to say, every believer is minister. So we, we kind of use the New Testament term of, of pastor but again, all of those are appropriate. And then we talked a little bit about this question of pastoral authority. I think this is important for us to talk about from time to time because it gives you an understanding of what the Bible describes as our role, our responsibility as, as pastors. So it's important for you to understand, even if you're not a pastor in this congregation, to understand what that role is supposed to look like biblically, what we should be aspiring to. We don't always, always do it perfectly. Um, but by God's grace, what are we striving for? What are we trying to, to do? Uh, what was what, what bibli- the biblical aspiration of that role of, of pastor? And I would say, too, it, it, you know, in a church like this, uh, a, a somewhat new church, we have the joy of having people from a number of different backgrounds. And so some of you may have come from a background where you know, uh, the, the, the pastor wasn't a dictator, he was the only tater. Right. I mean, it, it, what the pastor, everything. I mean, it, he he was the one that that called all the shots. And if you didn't like it, too bad. There's the door. And then probably some of you have come from kind of the other extreme, right? Where there was like this absence of pastoral leadership. Um, there was no vision that was laid down. There was not uh, a specific direction that the church was headed. And so the question is, what is biblical? And so we started off with looking at several passages. Uh, we looked at First Timothy that says, let the elders who rule well. We looked at uh, Hebrews 13, which actually talks about obeying those which have the rule over you. And we reminded ourselves that, that none of those words in, in the text imply a dictatorship. Right? The pastor has 
authority, he is to exercise leadership, but that nothing in these texts talk about, you know, the pastor is the only one who is in charge. And we specifically commented a, a, good, uh, um, a good bit on Hebrews 13, because the way it comes across in English can, can really... Um, could be misunderstood. And so this idea of ruling is just simply the idea of leading. And uh, the idea of submitting, we talked about before. It's that idea of being influenced by. So it is appropriate for you to be influenced, even strongly influenced by, by your pastor, right? Because he's the one who teaches you the word. And we've made the point before that, that pastoral leadership really rises and falls on a couple things, on, on example, right? This is what Peter says in 1 Peter, be an example to the flock. But it also rises and falls on the teaching of the word because that's really the authority. And we sang during our, our service, our song service, about Christ being the head of the church. Well, how does Christ exercise headship in his church? He does it through the word. And as the word is preached, spirit-indwelled believers are influenced by the teaching of the word and cooperate together in the fulfilling of the Great Commission and encouraging one another. So that's what pastoral authority should look like. It should, be, it should be strong enough to be a guiding force, to be an influencing force within the church, right? I, I, a couple years ago in a meeting, I don't know why it stuck out to me. It's just kind of one of those things that, you know, like popped out of my mouth. And, uh, and then I thought about what I had said. And I thought, actually, I'm going to save that, hit the save button on that because that actually works. I don't have a problem with a pastor having a disproportional influence on the congregation, right? I mean, let's face it. I'm the one that gets to stand up here most weeks and talk for 20 minutes <laughs> or, or 30 or however long it takes, right? So, so that it would make sense that I have, I have more influence. That having been said, that's all it is, is influence, right? It, it is the opportunity to persuade you from the Scriptures, and that's really what the, the role of the pastor should be, all right? It's not a dictatorship. It's not my church. So whose church is it? Well, it's Christ's church, but how does he govern that church? Well, elders are to exercise leadership, but that's not all there is to the story. And this is kind of where we transitioned last week, but we, we, didn't, we didn't continue forward. We thought it was a good place to, to, to break, but I believe that the New Testament encourages appropriate congregationalism. This is, again, where this whole idea of all of us being indwelt by the Spirit. If you're a member of North Hills Baptist Church, you have made a profession of faith in Christ. In fact, you have, you have told one of the pastors about that profession of faith in Christ. You've testified to the fact that you have turned from your sin you have depended completely on Jesus Christ for salvation. You are relying on Him and Him alone. And you've been, uh, another good scriptural word we could use is converted. You've been made new again in Christ. 
right? That's what you're testifying to. And so because of that, we all, we all are claiming to have the Spirit operative within us and dwelling within us. So that means if you are part of the congregation of North Hills Baptist Church, you are the church. And you are the church. So, so we are made up of a group of people who have been converted and have Christ living within us. Well, that has tremendous implication as we think about this question of congregationalism. That means it's not just the pastors who have the Spirit. Right? You ever, do you ever hear people, seems like they blame their decision on the Spirit? Well, the Spirit led me to do this, or, or even stronger, the Spirit told me to do this. God, God told me to do this. And unfortunately, in some circles, the pastor can stand up and say, well, this is what God is leading me to do. Well, how do you question that? Right? I mean, how do you say, now, wait a minute, preacher. <laughs> well, if, I mean, if God told him to do it, that, who are we to question that? Unfortunately, that is the attitude in some places that, you know, like the pastor has secret access to God. Not at all. The pastor has the same spirit living within him. He has access to the same word as every member of that congregation. The spirit's not consolidated right up here. We are all together, spirit indwelt, and by God's grace, trying to pursue biblical living. So when we come together as a congregation, that's important because this leads us to the question of congregationalism. I mentioned last week that some have this mistaken notion that congregationalism is the same as American democracy or it's the byproduct of it. Now, if I can get off on just a quick little tangent here, if you study American history and you actually study the inception of the Bill of Rights and the influence that Baptists played in making sure that there was freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, embedded in our Constitution. Very interesting study. So, in fact, Congregationalism predates the United States, and much of what has woven its way into our American democracy actually came from a biblical understanding of Congregationalism, not the other way around. That's a sidebar. That's a history lesson. You can study that another time. Be that as it may, some have this notion that, you know, well, we just do it this way because we're, you know, we're Americans and Americans like to vote. I don't think so. I believe that the New Testament teaches pastoral leadership, but there is a, a prominent emphasis of the rule of a spirit-led congregation. And the reason I want to take a few minutes to go through this this morning is because I don't want us to get swept into the notion that, well, we just kind of do it that way because it's our tradition. I actually think there's biblical foundations for this tradition. So there were many decisions that the apostles themselves referred to the congregation at large. Now think about that for a minute. If anybody throughout church history could have gotten away with saying, well, we're going to do it this way because I said so, you would think it would be the apostles, right? Yet what we, what we see is them intentionally empowering the, the group of saints, what we might call the congregation, 
in the book of Acts and in the epistles. And so I believe because of the biblical model, it is right for the congregation at large to perform certain functions. What are those functions that I believe um, the, uh, the New Testament lays out as the responsibilities of the congregation? Well, the first one is selecting leadership. Go with me, please, to Acts 6. Acts chapter 6. We preached through this passage, and we touched on it um, when we were preaching through the passage, but I specifically want to highlight the means by which the first deacons were implemented. So here we are in Acts 6. The church is just starting to pick up steam, and a problem develops. Verse 1, in those days, the number of the disciples was multiplying. You remember that they were not even called Christians yet. They were still being called disciples or brethren or people of the way at this point, right? So the number of the, the church size is growing, we could say in our vernacular. The disciples were multiplying. And there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, those are the Greek-speaking Jews, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. There was some kind of a protocol by which the church was caring for widows, and this group was being overlooked. So the twelve, who are the twelve? The twelve apostles, good, good. Uh, Summon the multitude of the disciples. Who is the disciples? Yeah, all the believers, all those that made up that local church. Now keep that in mind. And said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren. Now, who do you think that's referring to? It's a synonym with what earlier in the text? Disciples, right. This is the, this, in my reading of this, this is the congregation at large, the multitude of the disciples. Seek out from among you seven men, of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom that we may appoint over this business. So what do they do? Who do they give the responsibility for selecting these seven men? Yeah, the congregation. I mean, that's the way I read it. Now, they say that we will then appoint them, but the congregation selects them. You see that? You also see this neat synergy existing between congregationalism and pastoral leadership. Now, the, the apostles, just to be clear, are functioning kind of as the pastoral leaders at this point. In fact, James really emerges as the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And so the, the, the pastoral leaders, if we could say it that way, the apostles say, hey, hey, you choose seven men, and we'll lay hands on them, we will appoint them. And by the way, they're not called deacons in this passage. The verb is used. And so that's how we kind of have a hint that we know that this is the inception of the office of the deacons. So as they choose deacons in Acts 6, they are giving responsibility to the congregation. And as the apostles pass off the scene, this tradition falls in line as pastors are selected. You say, now wait a minute. Didn't the apostles have a pretty strong hand, particularly Paul, have a pretty strong hand in Uh, figuring out who the next pastor was going to be. I would concede that point, right? So early on, the apostles still have a very strong leadership role in, in, but that does not exclude the the congregation's involvement. In fact, I want to take you to one passage over in Acts 14, and I want to tell you how I understand this passage. Now, I will tell you that good men are going to disagree with what I'm about to tell you, all right? So just full disclosure, this is, this is debated. This is one of those things that 
Theologians like to ar argue about. We have our fun little things we like to argue. This is not a matter of orthodoxy. This is not a matter of, you know, the gospel. This is simply a matter of interpretation. But what I'm going to, what I'd like to point out to you is verse um, 23. We're in Acts 14. This is, this is Paul and his compatriots are on their kind of final leg of one of their missionary journeys it says in verse 23, when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. Now, if you read that verse, I think it would be natural for us to take away this notion that it is Paul and his band who are doing the appointing. But here is the interesting thing about this word. So it says uh, in verse 23, when they had appointed, okay, this word is a compound word in the original language. It has the idea of stretching forth the hand, all right? And it was actually used in contemporary literature, uh, the Greek literature of the day. It was actually used in a hand-raised vote, in reference to a hand-raised vote. You see that? The stretching forth of the hand, okay? Now, there are other, to full disclosure, there are other ways in which the word is used, but it is used in reference to a vote. So, pastor, what do you think is happening here in, verse, in chapter 14? Okay. I view this as the congregation functioning. I do take it as a hand-raised vote. All right. Now, like I said, some are going to disagree with me, uh, but I think, again, there's this synergy where the apostolic leadership is encouraging the church in the right direction. And I, I believe that the congregation is making the selection. All right, so my, my kind of takeaway from that is that the pastors serve at, at the will of the congregation. The pastors are, are appointed by the congregation. I, I believe that, that pastors are a, um, a, a function, selecting pastors is a function of the, the congregation at large, the congregation as a whole. And I wanted to bring up that verse because, um, frankly, it's one that's debated, and I just kind of wanted you to understand how I understand um, that passage. But what seems clear to me is that the congregation is involved. There is this congregational decision-making process that is commended to us. What else in Scripture do we see the congregation involved in, the congregation at large? Well, the commissioning of missionary representatives. You're right here already in Acts 14. Just go back a little ways to Acts 13. This is actually the passage that we are getting ready to jump into when we, pick, when we resume our, um, our exposition. This is the beginning of the missionary portion. Chapter 13, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So you have, you have men who are actively serving in the local church. And the Spirit moves, I believe, on that church to call out these two servants 
to send them for gospel work. Now, it's important because we continue to see that kind of theme uh, continuing as their missionary efforts go forth. Move over to chapter 14 and consider with me verses 26 and 27. From there they sailed to Antioch, right? So they're, they're coming full circle now. They went from Antioch, they're returning to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. This was, in our kind of, uh, kind of parlance that we use today, we call this the sending church. You see where that comes from? We'll, we'll delve into that more as we move through this passage. But here Antioch is their sending church. And now, what do they do? Verse 27, when they had come and gathered the church together. Is this just the leadership? No, this is the church as a whole. They reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So they are now reporting back. Do you see that? They are reporting back to the church that had sent them. Now, I will admit that I'm making some inference from the text. Are you with me? Like This is not clear in the text. I'm, I'm inferring. But here's what I see, and you can disagree with me if you'd like. Here's what I see. I see the church sent them. They are accountable to the church because what do they do when they're done? They come back and they report to the church. I believe that the commissioning and sending uh, of missionary representatives is a function of the congregation as a whole. All right? And so I think this congregationalism extends, and it is especially important when there is missionary work at stake. Now, I want to show you this synergy, synergy again in chapter 15. If you go over to um, verse 22 of chapter 15, Then it pleased the apostles and elders. Who's that? good, the pastors, with whom? The whole church. This is not just the apostles and the pastors, or elders if you prefer, making this decision. The whole church is involved. So it pleased them to send chosen men with their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, and then it goes on to tell us about the outworkings of that gospel ministry. Again, it's significant to me that it is not just the church leadership who are commissioning this gospel work. It is the church as a whole. And, of course, in this passage, we see this neat um, working together, right? It is, it is explicitly stated the apostles are involved. It is explicitly stated that the, the pastoral leadership is involved. And it is explicitly stated that the congregation is involved. There's a unity that is fostered by this idea of the congregation being in this gospel work together. And so my understanding is this is a second category, uh, or third, depending on if you count pastors and deacons separate, but a second category which we see the congregation at large um, making, making the decision. What else in Scripture is given to us as important functioning for the local church? Well, if you go with me over to Acts 18, excuse me, 
I misspoke. Matthew 18. Matthew 18. This is the procedure by which we should conduct ourselves when there is an offense, that is to say, a sin against another brother. All right, you may be familiar with this passage. I want to point out one simple thing. We'll begin in verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between, him, between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained the brother. So if a brother sins against you, your first step is to do what? Go to him. That's exactly right. Your first step is to go to him. Now, verse 16, but if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word be established. All right? So, first step is to confront him face to face. The second step is to what? Take, take witnesses, right? So he sinned, he is refusing to hear the admonition, verse 17, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the pastor. Is that what your text says? What does your text say? To the church. But if he refuses to hear the church even, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, this kind of Seed is planted here in Jesus' teaching, and it continues to get unpacked as we proceed through the rest of the New Testament. But what I want you to notice here is that the church is the final court of appeal. Now, this is not to say, and some people try to use this verse to say something I don't think it's saying, this is not to say that the pastors can be, cannot be involved in these first two steps. All right? However, the final court before removal from the church is the church at large. All right, so, so catch this now. I don't believe that removal from the, the congregation over a sin issue that is, that is performed only by the pastors is legitimate. Are you with me? And that's... It's the way it happens some places, right? The board of elders meets, and they make the decision. I don't really think that's what the text teaches. I think the text says to take it to the church. You say, well, is that developed further as we move through the New Testament? I'm glad you asked. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5. You may be familiar with the passage. There was sin of immorality that was, that was in the Corinthian church. Paul is writing about how this should be addressed. He says, basically, shame on you. Verse 2, you're puffed up and you should have mourned that this, this person is still in your midst. Right? You're, sheltering, you're harboring sin in the church. That's not okay. Verse 3, what do we do about it? Paul says, under inspiration, I indeed is absent in body, but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present. Him who has done this deed, verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together. What does that sound like to you? That's exactly what it sounds like to me, a church meeting. Not at your next board of elders meeting, 
It just doesn't sound like that to me. Along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that he may be saved in the day of the Lord. So this is referring to what we commonly call, by shorthand, church discipline. Right? The, the, the initial steps of confrontation have proved proven unfruitful, and now it comes to the point where we can no longer harbor sin in the church. We, if someone is an unrepentant sin, they need to be, I mean, right, they're professing faith in Christ with their mouth, but they are not professing faith in Christ with their life. They're living in rebellion against God. Unrepentant sin has been confronted. They've not heeded. Paul says, remove them. And it seems to me that he is not just saying that this is a function of leadership, but that it is a function of the congregation as a whole. Let me, tell you, let me show you another passage that solidifies that in my mind. 2 Corinthians, please. 2 Corinthians 2. Over just a few pages. Now, backdrop. There may have been an epistle between 1 and 2 Corinthians. Some of the grammar in 2 Corinthians makes us think that there was a, another epistle in between. And there are a few years perhaps even intervening. But they were still pretty close together in time. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul is now addressing forgiveness. And he is addressing a situation which someone in the church has repented. And how do we now handle that? Now, is this the same man that's addressed in 1 Corinthians? The answer is, we don't know. I kind of like to think it was. I mean, I kind of like to think that the, did, the church did what they ought to do. They did the hard, kind of tough love thing. And the man woke up and realized the depths of sin to which he had fallen. He repented and he's back. It may have been someone totally different. I kind of like to tell myself that's who it was, but be that as it may. Paul is addressing forgiveness. In verse 5, he says, But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you, to some extent, not to be too severe. Verse 6, This punishment, which was inflicted by the whom? The majority. Now, if you have a majority, what does that imply to you? You know how many people were there, right? You know how many were in favor, you know how many were not. That's what it implies to me. There's a vote. Right? And then actually the word that underlies it in the original language actually is a political word that refers to the majority of a voting body. And this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary you ought rather to forgive and Comfort him, lest he be swallowed up with sorrow. So I'm going to make, I'm trying to make the case here, and I will admit some of this is not an airtight case. Some of this is my inference from the text, right? I'm being transparent about that. But I understand. I read these passages and I put all these things together, and I say, how can you do this without congregationalism? To me, it's got the fingerprints of congregationalism on it. One more category, and that has to do with money, right? Money's always touchy. 1 Corinthians 16, you're right there in that neck of the woods. If you care to look at 1 Corinthians 16, 3. 
We'll back up to verse, well, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, that's what we would probably call an offering. As I have given you orders to the churches of Galatia, so I also to you. On the first day of week, let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collection when I come. Right? So, have an offering every week. I mean, is that what he's saying? Is it fair to, to take that from verses 1 and 2? And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. So Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. He's saying, take an offering every week, and then you will make the decision to deploy these funds. To me, that sounds fairly congregational. Over to 2 Corinthians again. Verse 8. Or excuse me, chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 19, and not only that, but who is also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself. So the churches authorized the deployment of these resources, of these funds. You see it again in verse 23. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you, or if our brethren are inquired about, they are the messengers of the churches. Right? So he's, he's again saying, uh, again, that goes back to our missionary representatives, right? So they are, they're deployed with funds for a specific purpose, and they're, they're sent out for a specific purpose, and it is done by the local churches. And actually, this touches on something we're going to hit next week, and it's another theme that we see, I think, in the book of Acts, and that is the cooperation of local churches, that they are independent and they are self-governed, yet they are cooperative with one another. They're, they're interdependent. And so the dispersal of funds, I believe, is another category. So depending on how you're counting, there's either four or five categories, which to me reek of congregationalism. So here's my understanding in the New Testament. Again, this is one of those areas where I trust uh, you are being influenced by your pastor's understanding of the text of Scripture, but to be very clear, it's not explicit, right? I mean, we, I've taken you to all these passages, I've shown you what they've said, I've showed you how I understand them, what I derive from them, but again, we're, we're in that, that realm of Scripture where we're kind of into interpretation, you, you follow me? All right. So my understanding in the New Testament teaching is that the voice of the congregation must prevail on matters that are designated to the congregation's authority. Church leaders, including deacons or pastors or committees, shouldn't take upon themselves decisions that are given in the New Testament to the church. I mean, recommendations and suggestions should be welcome, but the authority remains with the congregation. There's wisdom to seeking counsel, but there's no biblical authority placed in committees or boards. The biblical authority is consolidated in the congregation at large and the pastoral office. When I used to work in law enforcement, we had a little term, OJ. OJ, out of jurisdiction. Right? If, 
if a law enforcement officer was in a place that he was not authorized to enforce law. Like, so if you're a, you know, a sworn peace officer in the state of Texas and you cross into Oklahoma, you're OJ. <laughs> you're out of jurisdiction. Now, there's going to be mutual respect and all that jazz, but the, the bottom line is you don't have jurisdiction in that state. So there are certain decisions that I believe are OJ. They're out of jurisdiction, even for the pastors, because they belong to the congregation at large. Now, congregationalism can be misunderstood, so let me just give you a few things that congregationalism is not. Congregationalism is not, that's mine. Uh, this especially becomes a little touchy when we're talking about money. And we don't have this problem here, but I've seen in some churches where there's this attitude that, well, I'm part of this congregation and I've been giving, so that's my money. No, it's not. It's not, it's not some sign of communal pot. It's now the church's money. Do you see the difference? And the church as a whole, the church as a congregation, the church in unity, figures out the best way to deploy those resources to accomplish the mission to advance the kingdom of God. So it's not that it's mine. It's not that it's yours. It's the church's. All right, so that's a clarification about what congregationalism is not. Another thing that congregationalism not, is not is that every little thing is up for debate. Input is welcome, input is, is warranted, but that doesn't mean that every little thing is up for debate. Or some people feel like, well, to be truly congregational, we've got to argue about everything. I'm glad that's not the case here. But in some places, that seems to be the attitude. Like, were we truly congregational, somebody's got to oppose it. Congregationalism is not being cantankerous. It means that there is a role for the congregation. Another thing that congregationalism is not is that every single decision must be made. You know, like, we've got, got to buy a box of paper clips, so let's take a church vote on it. That is not what congregationalism, that's death by committee is what that is, right? So there are, there are functions that are, that are going to go move forward, that are going to take place, and the, and the congregation is not going to be consulted on every little decision, right? So don't get the idea if a decision is made, even a decision perhaps that you didn't like, and the church is moving forward, that, no, wait, 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 I thought you said we were congregational. Congregational does not mean that every single decision is going to be brought before the congregation. That's a misunderstanding of congregationalism. But you, you have seen, I trust, in these passages that the big decisions, the important decisions, the, import, the decisions, in fact, that, that touch on the functioning of the church and the spread of the gospel, did you notice that theme? Those are congregational decisions, not congregationalism run amok, where the congregational has, has to weigh every little thing. Oh, all right, let's come and take a vote on whether we should turn the lights on, right? Because that's going to mean a power bill. The other thing that it does not mean is that leadership can shirk its duty to lead. Now, this is a balancing act, right? Because a pastor is not a dictator. 
He doesn't just stand up and say, this is the direction we're going to go, whether you like it or not. Yet at the same time, the pastors are given responsibility for casting vision, for leading the church. And the temptation on the part of some is to hide behind congregationalism in order to avoid the hard decisions. And so congregationalism does not mean pastors don't lead, elders don't lead. Elders are still called to rule, 1 Timothy 5. And members are called on to, to work with their leadership for their own advantage. But pastors are still called to lead. It doesn't mean that every daily decision or operation is going to be weighed by the church, but the heaviest matters will be weighed by the church and are reserved for the congregation. Just a moment, I'm going to close this in prayer, but before I do, I kind of want to sew up kind of why is this practical, why is this important? Well, as we live together in a church community, we are or doing our best to walk by the Spirit and to um, o- obey what God has told us to do and do so in unity. And I believe that congregationalism is a, a, an important part of that unity. Things may not go in this church like you want them to. In fact, sometimes things don't go like I want them to. All right? But we're in this together. This is not, uh, it was very good for my heart in preparing to preach this as we sang on the theme of Christ being the head of his church. It's not my church. It's not your church. Now, it is in the sense that I hope you feel identified. You know, it's my church in that sense. But as far as ownership, I don't own this. You don't individually own this. We are all in this together. And I, I believe that that cooperative spirit of working together under the authority of Christ is really the, the big message, the important thing that we should take home from this. So may God help us as a church to be people who walk in the spirit, who are obedient to the word, who are endeavoring to be unified together in the common cause of making disciples in this place and around the world. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word and the careful instructions that it gives us. May we be careful in matters that affect one another, that we are attentive to your will, that we are loving, and Lord, that we are pleasing you in the decisions that we make. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.